I'm glad you're able to brave the weather and be here. I think I was expecting more of March, but here we are, snow again, March 1st. Hopefully April will be better. That's the goal. So glad you guys are here. We are finishing a series today on the parables. Uh, We've been in the parables now for 12 weeks, so this is our last week. I think it's a fitting way to end. This is a powerful parable here in Matthew chapter 20. Uh, Starting next week, we're going to start just a mini four-week series on the church. Uh, One of the things that we've been thinking about is just the fact that uh, we have elders, but we don't have deacons. And so uh, part of the thing, or part of what we're trying to do in that series that's coming up is just ask the question, what does it look like to have biblical offices in the church, one of them being deacons? So that will be one of the messages, but we'll also just be touching on some bigger things too, like what is the purpose of the church? What role do the members play in the church? So that's kind of the plan for the next three to four weeks, and then it'll be Easter. And then after that, hopefully First Peter is the plan. But today we're in Matthew 20. Uh, hopefully this series on the parables has been encouraging for you. Hopefully it's been challenging, and I certainly hope that's the case today. Let me, let me pray. Uh, and, and before I pray, let me just remind you the reason why we pray. We pray because we recognize in the end that if anything powerful is going to happen, it will be because God is at work. And I know that we pray every week before the sermon, but I think sometimes we think we're doing that just because it's the routine. But let me remind you, we pray because we recognize that he has all the power. So let me just pause here and pray, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Uh, Father, we thank you. Uh, for the opportunity to be here today and to study your word. Uh, We're thankful for the parables and all the things that we have learned from the parables. And certainly our hope is that we will continue to grow in our understanding of who you are through the parable that we're reading today in Matthew chapter 20. Uh, Father, we're uh, just praying that at the end of the day today we'd have a better understanding of what it means to know your grace. So Father, help us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So if you were to come up with a list of words most associated with Christianity, I would assume that somewhere on that list you would find the word grace. Uh, Certainly the word grace is something that permeates the Christian life. We sing songs about grace. Uh, In fact, we sang one earlier today. Probably the most famous of all, amazing grace. We sing songs about it. We know Bible verses about it, Ephesians 2, for it's by grace you've been saved. We pepper our conversations with talk of grace. We say things by the grace of God this happened. Uh, Sometimes we even name our kids grace. So I think it's safe to assume that we are familiar with the concept of grace. And yet I wonder, do we actually know what grace is? I don't mean that in the sense, do we know a definition? We could probably come up with a definition. I think my favorite definition of grace is unmerited favor. But I'm not talking about that when I say I'm not sure if we know what it is. I think we could all probably come up with some definition that would at least be workable. But what I mean is, I don't know if we actually understand and believe what grace actually is. I don't know if we actually experientially believe the concept of grace. And that's why I think this parable that we're about to read today in Matthew 20 is so helpful. It doesn't give us a tight definition of grace. It doesn't say this is what grace is. Instead, it gives us a picture of grace that it maybe at first is a little surprising. But in the end, I hope that will give us a better understanding of what we mean when we say by the grace of God we go. So let's read here, Matthew 20, starting in verse 1. Let me remind you here, as always, that this is the Word of God. We're going to start in verse 1. I'll read through the whole parable, which goes all the way through verse 16. Verse 1 says this, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went, going again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. 
And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. And when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. So Jesus opens this parable in familiar fashion. In fact, in many of the 12 parables that we've done over the last 12 weeks, he starts in the same way. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like this. And then he tells the story of the master of a vineyard. So the story starts in this way, that the master of the vineyard is going out to find laborers for his vineyard. Now, in Jesus' day, in the area where he was living, a typical workday would usually start around 6 a.m. and would finish around 6 p.m. There'd actually be 10 hours of working. There'd be two hours that would be allotted for meals and breaks and times of prayer. But generally speaking, the workday lasted from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. It's a long day. And so the master of the vineyard goes out likely before 6 a.m., and he goes to the marketplace hoping to hire day laborers. Now, the way it worked is that these day laborers would gather in the marketplace. These were people who were genuinely poor. Uh, They generally did not have much money to their name, and they were looking for someone, anyone, who could give them some sort of money so that they could feed their family. So this is the scenario that we have in mind when the master of the vineyard goes to the marketplace and he hires these first set of workers, likely before 6 a.m. Now, there's a very important detail that's told to us in this parable, and that is that before they go out, he agrees with them that he will give them a denarius. A denarius would be a common day's wage for a day laborer. So this is a fair wage. Now, uh, given the fact that they are poor, given the fact that they are in a desperate situation, that they're looking for just anyone who could hire them, he could have tried to extort that. And he could have said, well, I'll pay you six-eighths, or I guess that would be three-fourths of a denarius, or I could give you seven-eighths of a denarius. He could try to somehow leverage the fact that they were in a desperate state and tried to pay them less, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he gives them what is right and fair. He agrees. He says, I will give you a denarius at the end of the day. And so this first set of workers, again, around 6 a.m., they head out towards the vineyard. Now, about the third hour, around 9 a.m., he decides that he needs to go and hire more workers. Now, we have no idea why he does it this way. We may ask ourselves, well, why didn't he just hire the people he needed at the beginning? We don't know. Is it possible that there are more grapes than he expected? Is it possible the conditions were more difficult than he was anticipating? Is it possible that the first workers weren't as productive as he was hoping? We have no idea. And that is clearly not the point of the parable. Jesus doesn't give any sort of insight as to why he needs to go back. All we know is that he does need to go back. And so he goes back around 9 a.m. And now he hires the second set of workers. Now, importantly here, we're told that they did not come to an agreement. Remember with the first workers, he agreed, I'll pay you a denarius. He does not do that here. Instead, he says to the second set of workers, he says, if you work at the end of the day, I will give you what is right. And they agree to go. Now, the fact that they're willing to do that, that they're willing to say, okay, we're just going to trust that the master will give us what is right and fair, probably tells us something of the character of the master and his reputation. Uh, think of it this way. Let's, 
Let's just say, um, and today seems a fitting day to say this, let's assume that you have a snow shoveling business, okay? We'll say you're a, a teenager and you have a snow, snow shoveling business. I know some of you are teenagers. This isn't maybe hard to imagine. Uh, some of you, it's been a long time since you're a teenager, so you may have to use your imagination a little bit more, all right? So you have a snow shoveling business, and so you go out around the neighborhood and you find uh, there's an old man down the street, Mr. Smith, old man Smith, and so you ask him if if he'd be interested in you shoveling his driveway. Well, old man Smith is very particular about the way his driveway is shoveled, and he refuses, for whatever reason, to allow you to use a snowblower. And so you have to shovel it by hand. And so as you're looking at the driveway, you realize this will probably take 10 to 12 hours. This is a huge driveway. So the question is, will you take the job? Mr. Smith says he's willing to give it to you, but he also says, listen, at the end of the day, I will pay you what is right. The question is, will you take it? Well, it depends, right? It depends. Does Mr. Smith, old man Mr. Smith, does he have a reputation of being generous, of being kind? If so, you'll probably take the job. If, on the other hand, he has a reputation of being uh, stingy and underhanded, then I would think you probably would not want to shovel for 10 or 12 hours and just hope that he pays you what is right and fair. The reputation of the master, no doubt, or in this case, old man Smith, would make a difference. And so the fact that they're willing to go the second set of workers, without knowing what they're getting, tells us probably, A, something of the reputation of the master, and maybe also something of their urgency. Whatever the case is, they go. And again, at noon, the same thing happens. He goes and he finds another set of workers at noon. He does the same thing at 3 o'clock. So throughout the day, first at 6, now at 9, now at noon, now at 3, he's hired workers and brought them back to the vineyard. Finally, around 5 o'clock, he goes back and he hires the last set of workers, Now, this is the most interesting trip to the marketplace, in my opinion. Typically, the workday would be divided into four three-hour periods, from 6 to 9, 9 to 12, 12 to 3, and then 3 to 6. So it would be normal, maybe. It would be normal for someone to go at 9 or noon or 3 and hire more workers for the vineyard. But to go at 5 o'clock is unusual because it's right in the middle of what we would consider the work period. Why would he go for just one hour? Why would he do this? It doesn't make sense, hardly. For him to go in and to exert the effort of going back to the marketplace, it seems like the amount of work that he would get out of those workers in that last hour may not be worth his time. And so I'm interested by the fact that the, market, or that the, the owner of the vineyard actually goes back to the marketplace. But I'm also interested by these workers who are standing there at 5 o'clock. Uh, we're told that they've been standing there all day, so we're left to assume that probably at 6 a.m., They were standing there hoping to be hired. The fact that they are still there at 5 o'clock to me is pretty remarkable. At some point, you would think they would have cut their losses and said, you know what, I'm just not going to get hired today, and they would have gone home. But the fact that they are standing there tells us something about their urgency. It tells us something about their desperation. That they're waiting there at 5 o'clock. Who comes and hires someone for one hour of labor? And yet they're hopeful. They're hoping that somehow they can make some money. Keep in mind, again, they're poor. And so if they're not able to get a job for a day, this might mean disaster for their family. And so the master comes, and then he asks a question. He says, why are you standing here idle? Why have you not been working? Uh, The response is both logical and to the point. They say, well, simply because no one has hired us. And so apparently this is an acceptable answer. And so the master of the vineyard hires them also. And now they go out to the vineyard and they work the last hour. Well, then the end of the day comes. 
And at this point, the master is going to pay off his debts. He's going to pay off what he owes the laborers. By the way, this is probably another indication to us of his character. In the Old Testament law, is required that a master would pay his laborers on the same day that they worked. In both Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 24, it was instructed that those who owned a farm should pay their workers the same day. And so the fact that he's doing that tells us that he probably has good character. And so this is exactly what he does. He sets up the workers to pay them. And that's where the story gets really interesting. Because then the story takes the twist. And in fact, the reason why we spend so much time talking about his hiring practices and the way that he went about hiring these workers is so that we can set up the end of the parable here. Because in verse 8, he gives a really interesting instruction. Let's pick up the parable there in verse 8. He says this. Verse 8. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. Now there is no indication that historically this would have been common practice. That the last workers would have been paid first. In fact, it would have been much more advantageous for the owner of the vineyard had he paid the first workers first. Remember, he agreed to them of a wage of a denarius. And so had he paid them a denarius, like he told them he would, then everyone else who followed after would have a realistic expectation of what they should get from the master. They would think, oh, I worked roughly an eighth. I should probably get about an eighth of that. But that's not the way this parable is set up. Instead, Jesus flips the order And he says that the master of the vineyard pays the last first. Clearly, Jesus is doing this on purpose. He is setting this up so he can communicate a truth to us. So we're told that in verse 9, we're told in verse 9 that the workers who arrived at 9 o'clock are paid what they are owed. And it turns out that he gives them a denarius. Now this is actually astonishing. Right? They work for one hour, and he gives them a full day's worth, worth of wages. No doubt they were expecting much less. Can you imagine how overjoyed they must have been? Can you imagine the surprise they must have felt as they received a full denarius? When I was probably about 14 or 15, there was a guy in my, my hometown of Sheraton, Iowa, he was looking for some young, strapping lads to move furniture and appliances. And somehow I got included in that also. And so he hired me and along with these other guys, and we moved the furniture and the appliances. It took us like an hour or two. It didn't take very long at all. And after we were done, a little over an hour, he gives us $50. Now, uh, maybe in New York in 2015, you're like, well, that's exactly what you deserve. But I'm telling you, in mid-1990s rural Iowa, it was like we had hit the jackpot. In fact, this was so memorable to me that 20 years later, I still remember exactly what he gave me because I was so surprised. I was shocked. I thought, $50 for an hour's worth of work. I need to work for this guy all the time. I mean, this was incredible, right? I have to imagine that this is how these, first set, or these last set of workers felt, except much more, right? I received $50. I probably spent it on a video game or baseball cards or something dumb, but they are using this money to feed their family. Can you imagine the gratitude they must have felt? And can you imagine how the other workers must have felt? Their eyes must have lit up as they realized, if he paid them that much, how much is he going to pay us? In fact, we don't have to imagine too much. We're told in verse 10, that's exactly how they were thinking. Verse 10 says this, Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But listen to the last. It says this, But each of them also received a denarius. So their hope, their expectation that they're going to receive more quickly dissipates. Instead, they're given what the master said he would give them from the start. And so they start to grumble. Verse 11 and 12. 
And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. The truth is, I think we can actually understand their frustration. I think we can. If the workers that, re- that worked only one hour received a full denarius, should not the workers who work for 12 hours have received more? I think we can understand why they're grumbling here. But the response of the master is critical to understanding this passage. Verse 13 says this, But he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Now notice the tone that he takes here. He says, friend. Now there's certainly plenty of times in the parables where Jesus was not afraid to call people fools. He says, you fool. He'll do that in multiple parables. But here he refers to him as friend. This is meant to be a gentle correction, not a stinging rebuke. But make no mistake, it is meant to be a correction. He points out that they had agreed beforehand to a denarius, and he's giving them exactly what he said he would give to them. He's not wronging them in any way. And then he asks two key follow-up questions. He says, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, or do you begrudge my generosity? Now, I think those questions are probably easier in theory than they are in reality. I think intellectually we would all say, if someone were to say to us, am I allowed to do with what belongs to me? Do you begrudge my generosity? Well, I think we would say, well, yeah, he, he can do what he wants with what's, what he owes. And, and yeah, we shouldn't begrudge his generosity. But the fact is, it's much easier for us to intellectually concede the answers to those questions than in reality to believe that they're true. Because in reality, I think something about this parable doesn't feel right to us. It doesn't seem fair. Let's go back to our little snow shoveling business for a second. All right, and let's say that we're 10 years down the road, and my three sons, Noah, Eli, and Dawson, they have started a snow shoveling business, all right, the Miller Bros Snow Shoveling Company. Now, I thought about throwing Karis in that, but Miller Siblings Snow Shoveling Company doesn't have quite the ring to it. So the Miller Bros Snow Shoveling Company, and Noah being the oldest, and the fact that he's closest to college, he's the one who's out drumming up business the most, okay? And he's, he's most motivated while his brothers are sleeping in because he knows college is coming. And so he's actually shoveling some driveways by himself if he can. So he comes to the fictional old man Smith, right? And he and Mr. Smith, they agree that he will shovel the driveway for $100. And so Noah is shoveling away, right? He says, I'll pay $100 if you can get this done. And so Noah is shoveling and shoveling and shoveling. And around noon, Mr. Smith looks out the window and realizes there is no way Noah is going to finish this. And so he calls over to Noah and he says, Noah, call your brother Eli and tell him to come over. And so Eli gets out and he comes over and now the two of them are shoveling away, right? And then around four o'clock or five o'clock or an hour before the sun's about to set, Mr. Smith realizes they're not going to get this done and it might freeze up and it's going to be a disaster. So they call Noah again. They say, Noah, call Dawson. So now Dawson shows up. By the way, it is strange for me to think about my sons being 18, 16, and 14. That is weird to think about, but let's just say that they're this age and they're working, right? Noah and Eli and Dawson, they're shoveling like crazy. They've been taught by their master father, the snow shoveler. Everything he knows about shoveling, they taught him. And so they're, they're excitingly shoveling, right? And at the end of the day, Mr. Smith calls them in and Dawson's done first and he hands them $100 for working one hour. And then Eli comes and he hands him $100 who worked four hours. And Noah, who broke his back for eight hours, is also given $100. 
Let me ask you this. How is Noah going to respond to that? Listen, you can love this parable all you want. And you can say, oh, this is my favorite parable. But the reality is that Noah, in real life, is not going to like that. In fact, if they really do have a business together, when he gets home, he's probably going to say, we need to reallocate that money to make sure that it fits what actually happened, right? That Noah should get the equivalent of eight hours worth of work, Eli four, and Dawson one. The fact is, it doesn't seem right to us that someone who worked far less would get the same amount as someone who worked more. It doesn't seem fair to us, in my analogy, that Dawson, who worked one hour, would get the same as Noah, who worked all day. Something doesn't sit right. And you know, I would actually say that is part of the point of this parable. I think that's actually what Jesus is trying to get us to see. He's trying to get us to see that what happens here doesn't seem fair because it's not fair. Because listen, grace is not fair. Grace is unmerited favor. It is by its definition undeserved. The actions of the master, I'm convinced, are not meant to make sense to us. If any business owner acted like this, they would not be in business long. In fact, Norman Huffman puts it this way. He says, Jesus deliberately and cleverly leads the listener along by degrees until they, the listener, understand that if God's generosity was to be represented by a man, such a man would be different from any man we have ever encountered. Listen, if this parable does not seem fair to you, then maybe you're starting to get it. If you are bothered, if you feel bad for the first worker, then maybe you're starting to understand because the point is that God's grace is undeserved. The point is that God's grace is not fair. It's unmerited favor. And that, in fact, is what makes grace so spectacular and so scandalous because it's undeserved. God's grace is unlike anything else we've ever encountered. And make no mistake, that is the point of this parable, that God's grace is undeserved. Look at verse 16 here. Matthew 20, verse 16. This is the conclusion. It says, So the last will be first, and the first last. D.A. Carson says this about the point of the parable. He says, We learn in this parable how the last person can be first, and it is by grace. And so rather than come up with three or four or five different points about this parable, I think there's just one. And that is that God's grace is unexpected and it's unmerited. It's unmerited. I think it's fitting that we end our series on the parables with this one because this this is one of my favorite parables because Jesus does some masterful teaching here. Now for the record, I think all of his parables are masterful teaching. And I'm not just saying that because I'm obligated to as a pastor, right? I do think he's a masterful teacher, but this one is one of my favorites because he draws us in. He sucks us in. He makes us feel the iniquity of the situation so that we can begin to understand what grace is really like. Terry Johnson says it this way, Our natural sympathy is with the first worker. It seems to us not to be fair. This is why the parable is so important. Its genius is in its capacity to uncover our confusion about grace and our own self-righteousness. I think Johnson hits the nail on the head here. I think we naturally connect with the first workers. We tend to think we are the ones who deserve the best. In fact, let me ask you this. As we were reading this parable, which worker did you find yourself thinking more about? Did you find yourself thinking about the first worker and thinking, you know, I could see how they would be upset. Did you find yourself thinking, I can see why they're irritated, or maybe even thinking, that's not quite fair for the first worker. 
Or did you find yourself fixated on the third worker thinking, well, what a delight. I'm so happy for him. I would guess that if you're like most people, that you are fixed on the first worker. I know I was. In fact, every time I read this parable, I'm always a little bit bothered. I'm like, why don't they get more? That doesn't seem right. But that's the way we work. In our minds, we start to think that it's about what we do and what we deserve. Because our brains are hardwired for works. This is the way the world works, right? If you want to rise up in the world, then you do so by achievement. If you want to get into a good college, you need to have the right GPA and you need to get the right test scores. If you want to get into a certain graduate school, you need to do well on the entrance exams. You need to have the right undergraduate GPA. If you want to rise up at work, you need to produce. You need to show results so that you can be rewarded for your works. This is the way we think. And in fact, if that doesn't happen, if someone gets a promotion at work and we suspect it has nothing to do with merit, we suspect that it's office politics or it's because they knew someone who knew someone or because they had dirt on someone, this infuriates us because we are hardwired for works. This is why we naturally connect with the first set of workers. But the reality is that in our spiritual state, we are like the last set of workers. We're like the last set. The last set of workers does not deserve to get a denarius. In fact, they're standing at 5 o'clock still waiting for work. Maybe didn't even deserve to be hired. Is highly unusual that they would be hired that late in the day. They certainly did not deserve a denarius. They did not deserve the favor of the master. But understand this, we don't deserve the favor of the master either. We do not deserve the blessings of God. We do not deserve eternal life. We do not deserve peace with God. We do not deserve forgiveness of sins. We do not deserve that the righteousness of Christ given to us. And yet because of what Jesus did on the cross, all of those things can be true for us. That's undeserved. It's grace. Not because we deserve them, but because of unmerited favor. But here's the issue. Our tendency to gravitate towards the first set of workers betrays the fact that we don't really understand grace. And that in the end, we are filled with self-righteousness. Listen, we think that because we go to church, or because we're pretty good people, or because we're not as bad as other people, that God kind of owes us. And here's how I know that's true. When bad things happen, what's our first reaction? Our first reaction is to ask, well, why did God do this? Or why doesn't God care about me? Or where was God in all this? Why did God abandon me? But do you understand what's happening when we, answer, or when we ask those questions? We're taking grace for granted. Listen, we all deserve the judgment of God. We all deserve the judgment of God. In fact, the Bible is clear on this issue. The one thing we deserve is eternal punishment. This is what we talked about last week. We deserve eternal punishment because we have rebelled against God. If you think of just the Ten Commandments, it's obvious that we've broken all of them. Do not lie. I would venture to say that probably you've told a lie today, maybe. Do not steal. We've probably all stole something. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. People do this all the time. They use the name of God flippantly. Do not murder. Hopefully you haven't murdered. But Jesus says that if you have hatred in your heart, that's murder. Do not commit adultery. Jesus says if you have lust, that's adultery. And so if we were to go through the rest, it would be obvious. We have broken all of them. We are liars. We are thieves. We are murderers. We are adulterers. We are blasphemers. We are rebels against God. The only thing we deserve 
is His punishment. That's the only thing we deserve. It's only by God's grace that we are not struck down on the spot. There was an, old, uh, an older man at the church in Texas that I was at previously. And when you would ask him, how are you doing? He would always respond this way. He would always say, better than I deserve. Now, I don't know if he's trying to make a theological statement or if he just heard a sermon one time and he really liked that phrase. But he was spot on. Because all of us could say we are doing better than we deserve. Anything that we receive that is not the eternal wrath of God is God's grace. Because the only thing we deserve is his wrath. And yet, all of the things that he gives us, all of them are grace. The fact that we have health, whether it's a lot of health or maybe a lack of health, but the fact that we have any health at all, that's God's grace. The fact that we have family, that's God's grace. The fact that we have a job, the fact that we have money, the fact that we have a house, the fact that we have clothes, the fact that we can drive cars, all of this is God's grace. And so when we get upset when God takes one of those things away, or when we get upset with God because one of those things disappears, whether it be health or family or job, it betrays the fact that we never really saw them as grace to start with. We saw them as things that were deserved. We started to presume on the grace of God. We've forgotten that all those things were gifts from God to start with. And so when you find yourself being angry because certain things have been taken away, that betrays the fact that you never really thought it was grace to start with. Rather, you felt like you'd earned it in some way. That's the issue I'm convinced that this parable is trying to expose. Again, Terry Johnson says this, here's the problem this parable is exposing. We have begun slowly and subtly to think of ourselves as deserving a place in God's kingdom, which others don't. And so I think Johnson is pointing out two things that are correct. One is that we've begun to think that we deserve a place in the kingdom of God. We don't deserve anything. Right? Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10 or 3.12, no one does good, not even run. Ephesians 2.1, we're dead in our transgressions and sins. Listen, all of us are like the last set of workers. We are in desperate need of favor from the Master. We do not deserve His blessing. So one issue is that we've begun to think that we deserve the kingdom of God. The other issue that Johnson points out is that that attitude then begins to affect others. We begin to think, well, I deserve the kingdom of God, but they don't. In other words, we love when we feel like we deserve something, but we don't like it when God shows grace to others. We're unwilling to be gracious, even though we've been recipients of grace, we don't want to show that grace to others. We slip into the mode of the first workers. We think to ourselves, well, I deserve a denarius. They do not. Again, I think this is evidenced by both the way we live and the way we think. In fact, oftentimes we're skeptical when God shows grace to certain people. Let me give you an example. I don't know if you've heard the name before of David Berkowitz. He's commonly known as the son of Sam. He was a, a serial murderer who terrorized New York City in 1976 and 77. He ended up killing six people, wounding seven others. All the while, he taunted the police to capture him. He was a wicked man. Uh, he would later say that voice of demons, uh, voices of demons were telling him to kill his victims. He was a part of a satanic cult. At the trial, many observers, many reporters said that he seemed to be the pure definition of evil. There seemed to be something wicked about him. About 10 years after he was incarcerated, Berkowitz, however, claimed to have a conversion when he decided to follow Christ. According to Berkowitz, 
He was reading the Bible that someone had given him, and he decided he needed to repent of his sins and trust Christ. From that point forward, he's been heavily involved in ministry in prison. He's been actively involved in counseling other inmates to the point that now in prison, he's referred to as the Son of Hope. Clearly a play on his name, the Son of Sam. My question is, what's your reaction to that story? Are you skeptical? Do you wonder if he deserves it? Do you think to yourself, well, I don't know if a guy like that can really change. Or maybe you just think, well, he's just trying to play the media. This is just a jailhouse conversion. Now, the truth is, I have no idea whether he's actually a Christian or not. Maybe he is playing the media. Maybe it's genuine. I'm not sure. But there's a reason why we're more skeptical of stories like that than we would be if, say, our neighbor that we really like or our cousin were to tell us, oh, yeah, I've decided to become a Christian. And the reason why we're more skeptical, I think, is because deep down we still think that merit is a part of the story. And so when someone's done something really bad, we think, I don't know if he's really changed his ways. But other people who we like more and we see them as not as bad, we're quickly willing to hear their story. Why? Because we still think that merit is part of the story. We still think that we contribute something. That's what this passage is meant to challenge we are meant to understand that we are like the last worker, completely undeserving of the favor of the master. That's why Jesus concludes with this line about the last being first, because he wants to remind us the way that that happens is only by one way. It's by grace. If the story bothers us, and listen, I'm fully willing to admit, this story bothers me when I read it sometimes. If the story bothers us, it's because of our own lack of understanding of grace and our own self-righteousness. His grace. Do we begrudge his generosity? Grace truly is undeserved favor and merit. Make no mistake, as Ephesians 2 reminds us, we are saved by this undeserved merit. It's by grace you've been saved. Through faith, not from yourselves, not by works, so that no man can boast. And that's what this parable is about. It's about God's unexpected and unmerited and undeserved grace. And in response to that, I would just offer up a couple of suggestions here of ways you can respond. First of all, I'll say this. If you do not know Christ, understand that this grace is available to you today. Listen, I know that every week we have people here who do not know Christ. Maybe some know they don't know Christ. Others aren't even aware they don't know Christ. But I know that we have people every week who do not know Christ. And I want you to know that this grace is available to you. Yes, it's true that you deserve the judgment of God. Yes, it's true that you've rebelled against the king. But in his mercy and grace, God sent his son to pay the punishment that you deserve to pay so that you could get the reward that he deserved. This is grace. In fact, there's an acrostic that I think is helpful. Grace stands for God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace. And this grace is available to you today. It's available to you today. If you don't know Christ, I'm pleading with you because I care about you and because I know that there's hope for you. There's hope. Whatever baggage you come in here with, whatever your story is in the past, know this, that there is grace available to you today. There's grace available. If you're a Christian, I would think that this would fill your heart with gratitude. I would think that you would say to yourself, this grace truly is amazing. And that your heart would be filled with praise. You realize that in Ephesians 2, when Paul says that we're saved by grace, he's not just giving us some cool catchphrase. No, he's communicating a truth to us. He's saying, you are saved by undeserved merit. 
And I would think that in response to that, you would want to leave today worshiping. And you would want to say, this God we serve is amazing. His grace is spectacular. I would hope that you would leave here not feeling like you are amazing, but rather that you have an amazing Savior. And that you've been rescued because of His grace. And I would say in response to that then, that ought to change the way you respond to others. That you ought to be quicker to show grace and more appreciative of when God shows grace to others. If God wants to be gracious to someone else, don't be jealous. If He wants to bless someone else, don't think, well, they don't deserve it. Because the truth is, that's true. They don't deserve it, but neither do you. Neither do any of us. If He wants to rescue other sinners, don't act as if He can't do that. If we've been recipients of grace, why would we begrudge His generosity towards others? Here's the fact that we often want justice for others, but grace for ourselves. But shouldn't we not instead be thankful when God shows grace to someone else? Should we not instead be filled with gratitude, remembering the grace that we've received? The reason it bothers us when God blesses others, or when God shows His grace to others, is in the end, we don't really think it's about grace. We think it's about mercy. But it's not. Any good thing we have is from above, to quote James. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The only thing that we've contributed to our salvation is our own sin. That's it. And if that's the case, let us not be jealous when God blesses others. Let us not question when He shows grace to others. Instead, let us saturate ourselves with the gospel story. Let us remind ourselves of the grace we've received, and then in turn, let's show that grace to others. As J.D. Greer says in his book, The Gospel, as God has been to me, so I will be to others. The test of your understanding of God's grace is how you react when you see it shown to others. And it's whether you respond when you have a chance to show grace to others. If you begrudge his generosity to others, or if you fail to show grace to other people, then chances are you may not understand grace yourself. And that, I think, is the point of this parable. This is the genius of what Jesus is doing. He's drawing us in with the first worker so he can get us to see we don't really understand grace. Grace is undeserved merit. His grace is completely undeserved. And understand this, we are all in desperate need of this grace because without that grace, we have no hope. We are like the workers standing in the marketplace at 5 o'clock with no hope. There's no way that we're going to be able to get through this day and get paid a fair day's wage. There's no way that we'll be able to feed our family. We are those workers, except our situation is even more dire. There is no chance that we'll have eternal life. There is no way that we can earn favor with God. There is no way that we can have peace with God. But thankfully, we have a master who comes to the marketplace and rescues us. We have a master who comes to earth sent His Son so that we could be rescued. That although we were hopeless, by His grace, we could be rescued. The question is, will we receive that grace? And will we display that grace to other people? That's the challenge for us in this passage. Will we respond with thankfulness for God's grace to us? And then will we show that grace to other people? May it be the case. May that describe us, that we love and appreciate his grace and we show it to other people. Let's pray. Yeah, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the picture it gives us of grace. We thank you for the challenge it gives us. 
and that we ought to be gracious to others. We don't want to be like the first set of workers who assumes that we deserve the kingdom and assumes that others do not. Instead, we want to be reminded of your grace to us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.